Good morning again, and happy Valentine's on this very cold day. Hope that you are staying warm in multiple ways, warm with feelings of love and, and things like that, but also warm from these negative temperatures. Um, I know some of you have mixed feelings when it comes to holidays such as this. You could be in the camp that thinks Valentine's Day is just a commercialized thing to market and make you spend more money and stuff like that. Um, no pointing fingers, it's not nice. Um, maybe you enjoy this type of day because you're able to have another reason to get out and to enjoy uh, your spouse, um, so you don't need special days like that. I don't know. Obviously, my, my mind has shifted a little bit in terms of these types of big days. Um, I did get to take the girls out for supper on Friday, and that was a wonderful thing, because I've always, I've always liked these types of days. Birthdays, anniversary, Valentine's Day, days ending in Y, whatever it is to be able to show the love that I have for those around me. You know, I, I love to set the bar high. I was never one for excuses, and I hope that I can instill that into my daughters. You know, my, my issue with Valentine's Day is more so how we're celebrating love and, and all this stuff, honoring a person that died in a tragic way. You know, St. Valentine, he, there's about three good legends that have stuck through the history in terms of how he died, in terms of what he went through and the things that he did. You know, it is known that he died for being a Christian. The circumstances surrounding that imprisonment and death are um, debated, and you can kind of pick your poison with that. But it does kind of seem morbid to celebrate somebody that died in such a tragic way with a day of love like we do, right? But I think it's also a good connection to the gospel message, a link that can help us understand what Jesus did for us in the form of true love. And even as I was writing this, and I wrote the words true love, I would say it in the mind of the princess bride. So it's something that you now have stuck in your minds. You're welcome. You might have to go home and watch that today. But of course, we, we celebrate his death, his resurrection every day as a believer, as we understand the depths of his love, understanding the love that he has for us. Regardless, when it comes to a day like today, we do come from different places. Some of us are single and happy. Some of us are single and wanting to celebrate the day with someone. And there are marriages that need a day like today as an excuse to get out. And there are others that use today just for another reason to go out. Holidays like this, if you're married, should remind you uh, to pursue your spouse in the same way that Christ pursues us. It's a wonderful picture and the analogy that's used all through Scripture. So I hope that your day is filled with love today. And today we're going to be closing up another chapter in the book of Luke, chapter 18. We're going to see some titles that are thrown around, some concepts of blindness and how it's cured by Jesus. Hopefully some interesting tie-ins and a deeper look at the church today as a whole. So, if you have your Bibles, join me in Luke 18. I'm going to begin in verse 31. 
And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting on the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd go by, he inquired what this meant, and they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in the front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray for open hearts and minds to hear your truths. Lord, personally, my prayer this morning is found in Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, Having on his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Father, may we relish in your atonement this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. All right, so we see that Jesus is on his final approach to Jerusalem. Um, this all began back in chapter 9, where he sets his face, face towards Jerusalem. And as I went back to chapter 9 this week, and I kind of reviewed all of what happens in chapter 9, there's a ton of stuff. You know, he sets his face towards Jerusalem, but he also predicts his death two times. He has the transfiguration. Peter declares that he is the Messiah. He heals a demon-possessed boy, and he talks about the cost of following him. All in a day's work for Jesus, I suppose, right? But here in 18, we see what's kind of called a bookend, so to speak, in Scripture, where in chapter 9, you have him setting his face towards Jerusalem, and now he's on his final approach to Jerusalem. You have the two predictions of death in chapter 9, and now finally the third prediction of death here in chapter 18. And I think as we, as we see this, he's predicting his death for the third time, and he tells his disciples that they're going up to Jerusalem. And I think it's of note that when it says disciples, it says the 12 disciples here. So these are the main ones. These are the ones that are closest to him. I think that this is very important for us to understand and keep in the back of our minds as we move through the application today. Because I want to look at three different perspectives. I want to look at Jesus' perspective, the perspective of the disciples, and the perspective of the blind man here. And hopefully we'll see some comparisons to each one in our own life to help 
further push us in God's mission. So, let's start with this opening paragraph here. Here we see Jesus uh, interacting with his disciples, and we want to understand that Jesus is pointing out prophecy here. And I think that he's showing them this for a few reasons. First, he is showing that he is the fulfillment of scriptures. He's quoting things from places like Psalm 22, which show the humiliation and what Jesus would need to go through um, at the hands of Gentiles. So when he brings up this prophecy and what must happen, he's assuring them that the word of God is true. And I think that this is an important thing for every believer to understand, that the word of God is true. And I think those of us here would agree with that, right? It's okay. I'm gonna, it's a smaller crowd. It's almost youth group level size, so we can have some interaction this morning. It's okay to nod or even verbal yes and, and stuff like that. Thank you. So remember that answer because it's going to come into play. I may be setting you up for something just to give you a fair warning. The second thing that he does here is use, he uses the title Son of Man. Now, Son of Man is used in many places in Scripture. It's used a lot in, in the Gospels. In Luke, it's used 25 times. Most of the time, it is uh, referencing uh, a self-designation where Jesus is using this to refer to himself. But again, it has significance in Scripture. Uh, it's used all over the book of Ezekiel. But the main passage that they would understand and go back to is Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a dream. And he's dreaming about four beasts that kind of come and go and they represent kingdoms. Uh, kingdoms of power here on the earth. And then it culminates here in verses 13 and 14. And it says, As I watched the night visions, I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient one who was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. So this connection, we can see how this connection of Son of Man points to Jesus. We can see how this self-designated title that Jesus uses points to a prophecy back in Daniel. And with, with this understanding then of the Son of Man to refer to Jesus in this way, I'm hoping that we can also see the mindset of the Israelites and the disciples. This is what they're looking for in the Messiah. This is the picture of Jesus. Somebody that would be a conquering king because his dominion and his kingdom will last forever. It says so in God's word, right? God's word is true, and they're believing that. His kingdom shall not pass away. So why would they think that the Son of Man should face death? Again, this would be the mindset of the disciples as they're walking forward into Jerusalem, thinking that they're going to be conquering, thinking that they're going to be ushering in this kingdom. But the next thing that Jesus says, even with this sovereign authority, even with this dominion, even with his power, 
Jesus has a mission before him. Jesus has been on a journey to Jerusalem with a very specific purpose uh, to predict his, and he's predicting his death for the third time now, a very specific purpose to complete the redemption plan of God. This would not line up with the disciples' thinking, with their presuppositions. Even though they're looking at God's word, they're not taking it all in. But I want you to notice, as he is going to Jerusalem, he has confidence. He's not shying away from going to Jerusalem, knowing full well that he's going to his death. He is going confidently, knowing that he is going to be completing God's plan. I think that we can really learn from Jesus here as we apply this to our own lives and our own mindsets. Because what, what would it look like to live our lives with that type of confidence? How many of us are afraid to give up our lives? Period. Not just on a Sunday in church when you're presented with the question, but you know during the week. For many people... Death is a difficulty. And as the saying goes, you know, it's not until you come to the point where you accept the reality of death in your life that you truly begin to live. And you understand what that means, where you're living each day as it's your last. You know, it's a common sentiment, but hard to actually live out. And if you were to tell somebody that, you know, live each day as if it's your last, it's hard because I've got jobs, I've got responsibilities, I've got things I've got to do. I can't just go jet-setting across America or the world and enjoy life that way because that's what we think about when we think about living life to the fullest, a life of luxury and travel and, and all these other types of things. But truly living is living for God, to live for his purposes and his kingdom. The Christian experience of dying to yourself daily and rising to new life in Christ needs to be lived out daily to where it's Christ who lives and not myself, not my own selfish desires. You know, people need to come to grips with the ultimate end of everyone so that you can rise to new life with Christ each and every day. And for the disciples, they would need to understand and accept his death in order to understand the purpose of his life. And this week, I prayed very hard about this in my own life in light of um, some different things. But you know, the other thing that I thought of when reflecting on Jesus' march towards Jerusalem, pop quiz, what is Jesus' last words on the cross? It is finished. What would it look like if I marched through life with that same type of confidence? To that, you know, that same confidence in God's mission that I'm doing what he asks me to do, that I'm running the race that is set before me in a way that I know that I'm honoring God, that I'm glorifying him, so that when I come to the end of my life, whenever that will be, I will not have any regrets. 
because I've run hard for him so that I would be able to confidently say, it is finished. I have done what you've asked me to do. Now, I know I'm not perfect and that I fall short, but that's not to be used as an excuse to not run the race. Instead, what it does is it stresses the importance of repentance and turning back to him in order to understand his grace and his forgiveness in a deeper way. Understanding the joy of his grace and living in that. Praising and worshiping him. And again, I prayed hard about this this week in light of the reports of Ravi Zacharias. Another reason why we don't idolize people. Now we should be able to trust people, to look up to people as mentors as we're being discipled, but understanding that we're human. And I think what has really challenged many of the church leaders through this event is a look at procedures, a look at boundaries, understanding where we are falling short. And this atrocity has made people take a hard look at the secrets that we keep and why things need to change in the church, in our lives. When I look at the state of the church, I would say many Christians are not dying to sin. Instead, we are entertaining it. We are flirting with the lines of temptation, and we're succumbing to that. We don't publicly confess anymore because, well, that's just between me and God, and that's a Catholic thing. We don't do that here. But I've found that that type of approach leaves us staying silent in our struggles, crying out for strength while not leaning on the word of God that we know is true and not coming to each other for encouragement and help. There's a lack of accountability in the church as a whole. And there are fears. There are real fears there. I mean, what if they really knew? What if they knew what I did? Would I still be welcome? Would I still be allowed to come in the doors? And we're right where our enemy would want us to be, isolated and alone. And why is this? Why is the church in this state? Probably many reasons, but the one, ones that I wrote down for this sermon I think it's because many times when we evangelize, we evangelize with the easy things like lying and stealing. They're good for sermon illustrations because everybody can point to that as like, okay, yeah, yeah, I've told a lie. I feel okay that way. But how often do we talk about pornography, sexual immorality, not just, not just homosexuality because we know we don't struggle with that here, but premarital sex, cohabitation, Lust. We talk about not swearing, but what about negative self-talk? What about our images? What about hurtful language that we use or, or Christian swear words? 
things that don't really address the heart issues. What about suicide, depression, anxiety? How many of those, how many of us have struggled with these things but not been able to bring it up in a church setting? I've been suicidal multiple times in my life. With these things, do we have a feeling like we have to check them at the door? That we have to keep things hidden and secret from one another? We are a church that should be open for somebody with those struggles, even Christians, even believers for 40 years, to come in and find hope in Jesus and encouragement from one another. We shouldn't have to check those things at the door because the church is full of broken people being made into the image of Christ, not perfected yet. If you're a believer this morning, I want you to think about the path that you're on. Are you confident to say, it is finished, if the Lord calls you home today? Because Jesus, the Son of Man, is confidently heading to Jerusalem to fulfill the Scriptures, to die in a humiliating way for the sake of God's redemption plan. And the disciples, the twelve, did not understand this. It says that it was hidden from them. They did not grasp what is being said. Now, that should bring out the natural question of why was it hidden? And, you know, one option, one way to explain it, you could think, is that God is hiding it from them or that he is actively making them not understand but as I have been studying a lot on the subject of human responsibility, I want to be careful of where I'm placing the blame to make sure it is where it belongs. And I want to state clearly, I'm not one of those that believes that God is at fault in this area, that he is not blinding the disciples. Because again, these are the 12. These are those that are closest to Jesus, that have walked with Jesus. You have Peter at the transfiguration that says, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. They know who Jesus is. But there's a problem. None of them are understanding that Jesus has to die. They're blinded to this truth on their own because they have believed what the culture has said about the Messiah. They have believed what what they want to believe with their own presuppositions, and they haven't taken in the full counsel of God. They haven't looked at all of the prophecies, only the ones that maybe they want to believe in. And of course, we have the, the benefit of not being directly in their situation, looking at it from years of study and things like that, and we can look back and say, how silly were they? How could they miss what was right in front of them? But I would like to suggest that we are closer to the disciples' mindsets than we think. Because we have the full scriptures of God, right? We have the full counsel, but we are still blinded to many things in our life. Because we want to believe what we want to believe. 
we too have our presuppositions. Now the closest relation that I can put us into and put into the disciples' shoes is our views of end times. You know, another little soapbox for you. My observations of the church at large. You know, as you study the end times, as you study Revelation, there's a lot of different points that you can do. Uh, there's a lot of views on Revelation. With all, yeah, all with the important points that Jesus is coming back. Personally, I'm more of a pre-trib, pre-millennial type of guy. And, and, you know, the studying of end times can be fun. You can begin to trace dates. You can look at seasons. You can look for signs. Um, and by all means, you treat each day as if Jesus is coming back today. But the danger that the disciples fell into, that we too are prone to fall into as believers, uh, is when it gets to the point that we can get consumed with our own thoughts about things and how things will happen because we want them to happen because we believe it's going to happen in this way. And I think in the American church that we're in trouble because we have been consumers for years, for decades. We have come to church to see what we can get out of it rather than understanding that we're coming to church to worship God. We have come to church to see if they're going to say everything that I already agree with. And if I disagree, well, I'm going to go try this church across the road. Instead of pouring into the scriptures with brothers and sisters of Christ being a community. The American church has been asleep because they have not been the church. How often do we act as if we already know everything there is to know? That we have our salvation, we're good. Now let's discuss these finer points of theologians that came around 1,500 years after Jesus. Because that's when truth really came to be. These types of discussions distract us from being the church. And we don't march forward with what God has called us to do. Because we're not being disciples who make disciples. We rarely share the gospel or our testimonies. And the irony is, when you think about it, in the lens of end times, if we're wanting Jesus to come back tomorrow, then we should understand the Great Commission, preaching the gospel to every nation, language, and tribe so that Jesus can come back. But we'll just write a check. Because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ready to do that. I can't go up there and speak. I can't share. I can't do these things. That's the pastor's job. But I want you to think to the book of Acts. What did the disciples have to lead the church? They had the scriptures, the Old Testament. They had their personal eyewitness testimony, and they had the Holy Spirit. What do we have? We have the full counsel of God in terms of the scriptures with the New Testament. We have our testimonies, we have the Holy Spirit, and we are building off of the backs of the disciples, the spiritual stones, off of the foundation that they laid for the church. 
Every one of the disciples followed Jesus unto death. Marching forward in faith, fulfilling the mission that was set before them. Now it took the filling of the Holy Spirit to teach them the truth, and they went. But are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you have the scriptures? Are you a disciple? Then what's our, what's our excuse? See, the American church has seemed more like a club or a hobby or something that we just do on Sundays rather than a community, rather than living life together, rather than a lifestyle. And the disciples in Luke 18 cannot understand what's going on because they are blinded by what they want to be the, be the truth. And I believe that this is wonderfully juxtaposed to the blind man who is physically blind but spiritually vibrant in his faith. Sometimes our eyes get in the way of our spiritual sight and our faith is blinded. But with this blind man, he hears the commotion, he asks what's going on, and he finds out that it's Jesus of Nazareth. He cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And you know, when, when I think about his actions here, I think of a few scriptures. I think of Romans 10, 14 through 17, which talks about the hearing of the word producing faith. And at the hearing of the name of Jesus, he cries out for mercy in faith. I think of John 20 when Jesus is talking to Thomas and Jesus says, you believe because you see? Great, but blessed are those who believe without seeing. Here you have a man who physically cannot see but is shouting out for mercy. This title, Son of David, this is more of a direct reference to the Messiah coming from the line of David. So this man is shouting out his faith that Jesus is the Messiah and he's asking for mercy within his pitiable state. Now the obvious sentiment is he's crying out for healing from his blindness. But I think that we can also make the connection to our own sin and how we too cry out in the same way for mercy to Jesus. Now with this shouting, he's creating a scene. He's yelling out the name of Jesus. And because of this, some people try to keep him quiet. Perhaps he is breaking the rules of a polite society or church etiquette. You know, like when the pastor's kid walks into the office and grabs a pillow and comes back out. You know, you all think it's hilarious, and looking back on it, of course it is. But in the moment, oh, that's not proper. What are people going to think of me? Oh, you know, you, you begin to have these thoughts, don't you? And yes, we need a reverence when we're coming to worship God. But sometimes, at the same time, we get too caught up in appearances and the masks that we have to wear, which again just further suppress our secrets. And we need to be honest with that. Sometimes the church can be a pretty judgmental place. And again, it's, it's a fine line because there is a standard of holiness that we are trying to attain, that we are trying to live by, that nobody can reach because it is perfection. But again, we don't use that as an excuse. 
So I think that as a church, as a whole, and then here at Harvest, we need to develop better methods of how we converse with one another in a healthy and safe way that can bring us into a deeper understanding of sanctification, of God's holiness, spurring each other on in the faith. And this takes time. This takes time of walking through life together, through the hard times and the good. But it's a vision that I have for this body. And this man, this blind man, he continues to yell out again, showing his persistence, understanding that Jesus is his answer. And again, we see something like bookends, but this time within this chapter. To start this chapter, you had the persistent widow who continues to go seeking justice. And now you have the blind man consistently going, persistently going, crying out for mercy. Mercy and justice, both authored by God. Even though he was blind, he could truly see. He had faith that Jesus could heal him. And you compare this to the disciples who could not see what Jesus was saying right in front of them in terms of the fulfillment of prophecy, in terms that he was going to die. We see those closest to Jesus, not able to see who he was fully. And then this blind beggar who is persistently crying out to Jesus as the son of David, not ashamed, not willing to be silent. Because of this, Jesus calls the man over. He's brought over and directly asks what he wants. And the man seizes that moment, that opportunity to ask for what he wants in Jesus' mercy, his sight, and he is healed. I want, to notice, I want you to notice the continuity of compassion as we've read through the Gospel of Luke that Jesus has. He stops and stands with the man. He listens to his request. He fulfills it. Jesus is full of compassion. He just got done telling the disciples that he was, what he was headed to Jerusalem for, a prediction that would be full of compassion. And it's fully understood after the fact but you think about the death and resurrection of Jesus. You think about his acts of love and why he was doing it. Again, pointing us to the compassion of Christ. How he brings light into darkness, sight to the blind. Both of these stories today are drawn out of the light, are drawn out by the light of Jesus to give sight to the blind, both physically and spiritually. Now, even though the disciples don't fully understand, they continue to follow Jesus into Jerusalem. The truth will continue to come to them, and they will show a perseverance until the Spirit fills them to teach them all things. But even then, you know, they're not perfect. They still grow. They still learn new things. We talked about that in Sunday school today with Peter and Cornelius. They still grow, but they practice obedience to make disciples teaching them to obey all the things that Jesus has commanded them to obey. That is the mission of discipleship. That is what is passed down to us as well. And we're not perfect. We're going to do things imperfectly. But hopefully we can respond to each other with grace and humility as we are all growing in our faith. 
The blind man who has been healed follows Jesus from here, and he is glorifying God. And he begins to praise God. All who see what happened begin to praise God and glorify God as well. You see, an encounter with Jesus draws out the response of following him and praising God. So when we think about our encounters with Jesus in the word each day, is that the response that's drawn out in our hearts? Are we praising him? Are we following him that day, that moment? It's not a Sunday to Sunday thing. It's not an Easter to Easter thing. It's every day that we need to be dying to ourselves, Understanding the forgiveness that we've received. Living a life of repentance. And it's hard. But we want to walk confidently forward in the plans that God has set for us. Marching to our end confident in our hope in him and him alone. As we do this, we need to be mindful of the pitfalls that all disciples are capable to fall into. Where we can be walking in what we believe to be the truth, but not fully taking in the full counsel of God. Maybe avoiding certain passages, maybe avoiding certain teachings, because it would be a damper on what I want to do. If that happens, we do need to repent because we're missing what's right in front of our eyes in terms of what God has for us, in terms of the opportunities that we can fulfill the, the, the plans that he set into motion. And I think that we need to be ready at a moment's notice to be able to share the gospel message or our testimonies, to share for reason for the hope that is in us, to the disciple or to disciple others in a way that they're then able to go and make disciples themselves. We need to be disciples who can see clearly, see Jesus, see his truth, his mission, and see where we need to go and who we need to talk to so that when the time comes near, we're ready to hear, well done my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for the truth of your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to examine our hearts. for those things that we are blinded to. I pray that you would help us to understand confession and repentance in a deeper way. To not be a church that burdens itself with its struggles. But Lord, to be a people that obey your commands, that treat each other with love and grace, even through discipline. Understanding full well that we're all running the races alongside of each other with the same goal in mind. Your glory, your honor, and yours alone. Lord, help us to be 
disciples of humility, disciples who have a childlike faith, disciples who can see clearly to advance your kingdom forward. Lord, I praise you this morning because you are God. I praise you this morning for the forgiveness of our sins. And I pray that your spirit would join us together as one body, united in your truth, in your love, repenting of our sinful behaviors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.